Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Judd Brewer. He is the author most recently of the book, Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. He is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He's the head of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. And he's an associate professor in both the School of Public Health and the Medical School at Brown. I loved this book. I found it really terrific, very pertinent. Um, I related to it personally. I, I personally have dealt with elements of anxiety and addiction, mostly I think to sugar and to work, uh, but I really have thought of them as addiction. And, uh, and so what I've asked Judd to do, instead of doing the normal you know, Q&A kind of interview, is, hey, Judd, would you coach me and let's teach people all about unwinding anxiety and the new science of breaking cycles of worry and fear in a way where it's in practice, in action related to me. So I'm going to be hopefully vulnerable in, in this conversation and hopefully cured by the end of it. Uh, and I'm <laughs> no so, so delighted to have a Judd with us. Judd, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I'm just going to start by saying uh, I um, overeat sugar. I, I go through cycles of saying, okay, and now, like right now, like as of last night, we just did a birthday party for my son. And Sophia, my daughter, and I shook hands and said, okay, we are off sugar now for a little while because we way overate it. And I'll go through cycles where I don't eat any sugar, but then that's really hard. And then I break it and then I overdo it and I'm back and forth. And, and so that's one kind of addiction. Mm -hmm. and, and then there's another kind of addiction that I have where I think it's, it's very hard for me to relax. Like I am always working on projects, moving towards the future, thinking of what I'm going to do next, working on, on, doc, you know, on, on writing that I'm doing. And there's an element of that that's incredibly productive and useful for me. But there's also a part of it that comes from a place that it is exhausting and that is like driving for fear of stopping. And I would love to continue to produce, but, you know, in a way that is supportive of my enjoyment and mental health, as opposed to, you know, out of fear, I want to run towards rather than run away from. And then actually, I'm going to throw a third. And you're going to totally, you know, cure all of this for me while teaching everybody at the same time these elements. In general, I think I worry. Like what I what I said uh, to a friend of mine recently is like, I would love to trust the, like there is every bit of evidence in my life that the world I live in is trustworthy for me, that I can trust the world and not worry about every possible eventuality. But I think I have this you know, ancestral, my mother was in the Holocaust and, and, and our, you know, like I grew up with this real sense of you gotta, you know, hustle and survive and, and et cetera. And I think I never let my guard down around that. So, wow, 30 minutes, you got your, your arms full here, John. 
Let's do it. So I think the way we could approach this is, so a lot of my research over the last couple of decades has highlighted that there's actually a three-step process for changing any habit. Great. And one of the biggest things that I never learned in medical school that I really needed to learn was that anxiety could be driven in the same manner as other habits. And that's why I wrote this book, because it, it just blew me away when I started looking at this, looking into the research and then doing my own research to see, you know, how well we could actually address these things. Long story short, you know, we got a 67% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in people with generalized anxiety disorder. You know, I like to start with the, you know, if you can help the people at the far end, then everybody else benefits. Right. So I would say pick one of those three and I'm happy to work with any of them as an example. And then we'll show how those, how you can uh, spread those to the other two. And I would say, if you, if you don't have a, well, think about your audience, which one would be most applicable? Well, to you everyone? tell me, I had an, I had an instinct, but I think my audience could probably relate. Like we're all addicted to stuff. We yeah. may call it addiction or not, but we're, so I think anyone would work. So tell me where your inclination was. So let's see if we're doing a mind melt. I was thinking the overworking piece. Okay. Uh, but if there was another one. No, let's do that. I was going to say, I was actually going to say sugar only because it's the most concrete and might be the easiest to play with. And you use that example a bunch, but I'd rather yeah. do the overworking. So let's do the overworking. I think it's more of a challenge. And yeah, so, great. you know, we, and then we can we can talk briefly about how to how to apply that to sugar and then also um, how to apply it to worry. So right. So let's what I would do. So if I have a patient come into my office, uh, the first thing I would do is take a history. But I, I would also start mapping out their habit loops with them. And for and this has been so helpful for me. We actually put out a free habit map where anybody can download this. I think at the website's mapmyhabit.com or something very simple. So what I would do is let's well, say you we'll put that in the show notes, by the way. Yeah. Okay. So you put that, you come into my office and I would pull out a piece of paper and I would say, okay, well, let me back up and say, we all form habits through the same process. This is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug, three core elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. And just to give you a sense for how that works, our ancestors who didn't have refrigerators needed to learn where to find food and how to remember to go back and find it again. And the way our brain works to do this is we see some food, there's the trigger, first element. We eat the food, there's the second element, that's the behavior. And then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. That feeds back so that the next time we're triggered by hunger, our brain says, oh, go back to that food source, okay? Right. So that with that as background, and same for avoiding danger. You see the saber-toothed tiger, you learn to avoid the saber-toothed tiger. So let's map that out with regard to overworking. Let's just call it overworking. Okay. So let's say the behavior, we've already taken that piece, is right. that you, you can't stop working or there's a time where you feel this urge to check your email or do, do an extra piece in a project. Is that a fair enough place to start or give me yeah. some color? Yeah, no, that's great. Like I, I think that the, yeah, the behavior is, um, work is always on my mind. Okay. And I will, um, like the question that I've been thinking a lot about is when is enough? Like what is enough? And, yeah. and if I'm not building, like bringing in more clients or writing more things or putting out the next, then I, I feel like suddenly I'm stagnating. And then that creates, you know, then, then that creates, I guess, anxiety, which drives me to work more. Okay. So let's, let's concretize this in terms of the always got to be doing more work as a, it, it can even be a mental behavior where you're saying work is always on my mind. 
Right. So let's say there could even be a mental behavior there where you're you're always thinking about work. Maybe that's a concrete place to start. So if work is always on your mind, is there anything in particular that triggers those uh, that mental habit pattern of you know always thinking about work? It's interesting because it's because it, it's always there. So I guess there are things that trigger it. Yeah. Meaning, if an email comes in and I look at it and it's work related, I, I sort of it's hard for me. I think where this gets, you know, maybe muddy a little bit is I think I have a very, very low tolerance for chaos. Yeah. So I want to get everything done that needs to get done to feel like I'm on top of things. I don't want to feel like I'm not on top of things. And okay. so, you know, if, if something comes in, then it's, it's a very hard for me to say that's going to be a trigger to work on it as opposed yeah. to say, you know what, it's Sunday, like I'll work on it tomorrow. Nothing's going to, you know, nothing's going to happen between now. And so, and so then I jump and work on it. Um, there's another thing which I think is subtle, but, and maybe interesting to work with is, I think as soon as I begin to just relax mm -hmm. and not do work, like just pick up a book, then I'll start to think of things I need to get done. So I think that actually in a funny way, relaxing is a trigger to work in, a, <laughs> yeah. in like a very strange yeah. way. Yeah. No, you're not the first to describe that. You can so, and and there's actually a little bit of science behind that. The one liner on that is when we are in such the habit of doing something, mm -hmm. then when we're not doing it, it feels uncomfortable because it's different. It's out of our comfort yeah. zone. Yeah. And so we're moving into our discomfort zone which, and our survival brain says, Hey, is there danger out there? I need to be looking for that. Let me run back to the safety of the cave and the safety of the cave is working. Uh, and this even applies to anxiety. I, I had a patient, I read about him in my book who was, he'd had anxiety for 30 years. And when he actually started getting to the point where he wasn't anxious, he was getting anxious that he wasn't anxious because it was uncomfortable. You know, it was just like, this is strange territory. What is this? Totally. Totally. Okay. Okay. So there, the first thing I'll point out here is the triggers are the least important part of the equation. So mm -hmm. often, and, and I hi highlight this because often people think, oh, if I can just find my triggers, I can deal with them. I can avoid them. I can, you know, fix them. But in fact, we learn based on how rewarding a behavior is, not based on a trigger. The trigger just triggers the process. Right. It's that cause and effect relationship. It's the behavior and then how rewarding that is. And right. you're describing as part of your experience, if I'm understanding this correctly, kind of this to-do list mentality. There's actually science showing that there's something rewarding about getting our to-do, checking off the to-do list. Mm -hmm. So there you can look at, so let's, let's dive into that a little bit more. So first step for anything would be mapping out a habit loop. Trigger is the least important part, but let's say relaxing is your right. trigger. Right. And then the behavior is to start thinking about work. Oh, I got to, uh, let me go check my email. Let me, let me get a couple of things done. Right. And then my guess is the reward is, oh, check those things off my list. You know, there's this, this myth of inbox zero. You know? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah. the reward is like my life is in order. Everything is okay. My business is going to grow. I'm going to be able to take care of my family. I won't die in the Holocaust. But, but the, but, you know, I could really, you know, catastrophize the other side, which is if I do relax and I don't do the work, then everything's going to fall apart. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating things, but not that much. Like my, right. my mind really goes there. Like everything's going to fall apart. I'm going to lose all my clients. I'm not going to be reliable. I'm going to, you know, and soon I'll be destitute with like, you know, no money, no home and no work. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that I, let me see if you, if you do, so do you understand that first step in terms of what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's yeah, the result? Yeah. hundred percent. So there's a trigger that, so relaxing is a trigger. And yeah. I think it's great to be explicit about this because we're teaching this. So relax, I, I relax. And that's a trigger to start to um, do this behavior, which is to think about work. Right. Yeah. And, and then also the thinking about work is to do work, but it's like to think about work and to start to do work. And the result of that, and we, I guess we haven't gotten to the result yet. Well, we'll get, so the result yeah. of that, is, let's just say you check off your to-do list. But oh, we're check off double- the to-do list. Yeah. Right. Check off the to-do list. And the result of that is there's, I, I've thought about this a lot because there's a dichotomous result. The result yeah. is I, I work, right? So like, I'm like a little tired and I'm never giving up work, et cetera, but I'm accomplished and I'm productive and I check things off my to-do list and I get, you know, success and positive feedback, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So let's double click on that result piece because that's once we can map this out, what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the reward of the result, we can then shift into how rewarding is it? That's the second step. And this is actually really critical. So tiny bit of neuroscience there. Um, There's a part of our brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that kind of stores and updates reward value. We basically create a reward hierarchy of different behaviors so that throughout the day, if given a choice between two things, we can quickly make a decision and not have to relearn that every day. You know, the simple example would be, and I I think the title of one of the chapters is why do we prefer cake to broccoli, right? So that was one of my questions. Is curiosity really as tasty as a piece of chocolate cake was one of my questions (laughs) for you, but go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) So basically our survival brains, you know, when presented with cake versus broccoli, if we eat both of them, it'll say, oh, more calorically dense. You know, the cake is more calorically dense. So our survival brain says eat the cake. So we form that reward hierarchy. And what that, what that highlights in general terms is that our brains are basically going to do something. They're going to lay down the reward value of something. And then they're going to lay that down in habit where we don't even pay attention to how rewarding it is. And then we just keep doing it. Right. As an example, my lab's done a bunch of work with smoking cessation and developed programs to help people quit smoking. People tend to start smoking around the age of 13 and they lay down that the, the reward is this composite reward of being cool or rebelling against their parents or whatever. And then they, by the time they're, you know, they've smoked for several decades, they're not even paying attention as they smoke. They're just smoking to kind of get that dopamine fixed because now right. they're dopamine dependent, you know, they're, they're nicotine. And dependent. you make a really, really important uh, comment about dopamine, which helped me to understand something, which is dopamine isn't the pleasure. Yeah. No, uh, uh, hor- so explain that it's not the pleasure. Yeah. It's the, it's the desire. And I think that's really um, profound. Yeah. So thanks to the internet, you know, a, a lot of, let's just say novice neuroscientists uh, or folks that like neuroscience and write about it on the internet, they're like, Oh, dopamine pleasure molecule. And then it gets memefied and then spread, you know, and be like, oh, it makes sense, but they're not actually understanding the science of how it works. So the the basically dopamine is set up to help us it, when we when they're surprised, we get this big dopamine surge, right? Like we're searching for food, suddenly, oh, there's a food source, oh, and that dopamine firing says, remember this, right? Lay down a memory so you can come back here. You're not, we're not. It's kind of like having a, a digital camera that only has a certain amount of RAM. You can't be taking pictures all the time because you're going to fill up your your um, or your memory card, so to speak. Right. Our brain is the same way. We can't be constantly remembering everything. We got to remember things that are salient, things that are important. So it fires then, and then it starts firing in anticipation. When we're hungry, dopamine fires and says, "Get your butt off the couch and go get some food." Right. 
Right. Notice how there's no pleasure in either of those. Surprise is surprise, you know, and surprise can be associated with surprise of something pleasant or surprise of something unpleasant, but the surprise itself is a surprise. Right. And then that anticipation, that craving, that urge to do something does not feel good into, in, unto itself. It's set up that way. If it felt good, we'd be like, yeah, feels good. Why should I get up? Right. It, it lights that fire. Right. That's interesting. Right, right. The desire is, desire is a motivation. Pleasure, in offense, is a is a demotivation. Yeah, pleasure is more associated with opioids. It's more associated with uh, endocannabinoids. You know, this is like why people take opioids to bliss out. This is why people smoke marijuana. You know, this is why people, you know, it's probably involved in the serotonin system. Why people take ecstasy right. or MDMA and things like that. You know, there. If you, my patients who are addicted to cocaine, for example, they talk about paranoia, restlessness, anticipation, all this stuff that none of it feels good. And they're just trying right. to get back to baseline. So just that's where the dopamine misnomer comes in, where it's, it's not a pleasure molecule at all. It's a drive molecule. It's a motivation molecule. Right. right. Okay. So in terms of reward value, this orbital frontal cortex is storing reward value. And the only way to break a bad habit, let's say of overworking or you know, checklist mentality on a Sunday afternoon when you could be spending time with your family, for example, is to pay attention and, up, and that awareness is what changes the reward value. The way that works is that our brain sets up a reward value. And the only way to change that is with, through what's called a positive or a negative prediction error. So I'll give an example of, uh, let's use sugar as an example. So if I set down a reward value of cake, of chocolate cake, and I walk by a new bakery and I don't know how good the cake is in there. I go in there, I have a piece of cake and it's like the best cake I've ever had. I get what's called a positive prediction error because my brain was predicting that it would be so rewarding and it's actually better. <laughs> what that does is surprise, you know, fires the surprise um, part, you know, that surprise trigger in our brain. It says, hey, remember this good bakery, go back here, get more cake here. If it's, if we eat the cake and it's like, eh, we get this negative prediction error because our brain was expecting it to be so good and it's not as good as expected. So our, we're going to learn, eh, don't go back there. That's the only way to change habits. And so what we have to do to change any behavior is to pay attention, right? If you're not paying attention when you eat the cake, somebody says, how was the cake? And you're like, I don't remember. <laughs> so, you know, so you have to go back and do it again. Right. So here, let me ask you, when you, when you just ask the simple question, what do I get from this? And not intellectually, but really feel right. into your direct experience. When you are caught up in that overworking mentality or like doing one more thing when you could be spending time with your family, what do you get from it? How does it feel? You said, you said there were mixed results. So describe both of them. Yeah, I think, so I think it feels, I guess it depends on what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it, it, on the positive side, it feels accomplished. Like it mm -hmm. feels like I'm getting stuff done. Wow. So I did that. I have a new client or I've, I've, you know, I, I made a commitment and I've exceeded expectations. That feels good. Like I'm, I'm on top of stuff. It yeah. feels good for me to be on top of things, yeah. right? Yeah. It, it's on, on the downside, I often feel an incredible stress of being pulled in multiple directions. Like yeah. I'm not really doing what I need to with my work. I'm not really doing what I need to with my family. I also really want to work out or I want to, and I'm not, I'm not, not only am I not present in the moment, but I'm, always, always feeling torn that while I'm doing one thing, I really should be doing another thing. And, and that feeling creates anxiety. Okay. 
So two pieces there. How long does that feeling accomplishment of accomplishment actually last? Well, it's interesting. So I think it it lasts like um, I guess I guess there's two sides to it, right? Like one is it it like I I get the feeling of accomplishment. I've done that. I'm relaxed. You're right. It doesn't in some way. Not that you were making. Not that you were right or wrong. You just asked a question. But but it 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 doesn't. It, it lasts as long as the next open unaccomplished thing shows up. Yeah. And then I feel like it's I'm not accomplishing anything until until I've accomplished it. So it only lasts until the chaos, you know, what I'm terming the chaos, or it lasts until the next email comes in. Basically, yeah. that's how long it lasts. Actually, yeah. So, so that's important to point out because you're not only are you pointing out some of the downsides to doing this, where you feel constantly pulled, and my get my experience that's pretty draining when I'm pulled between right. things. Yeah. And the other draining. thing, when I'm not 100 percent able to focus on something, it just doesn't feel nearly as good when I'm just totally in the zone working on one right. thing, you know, it's right. like workout, family or work, but don't do right. all, you know, don't mix all those th three things. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. So with the first piece, you can notice how that actually feeds back and drives more habit loops. Oh, accomplishment. Oh, got to get more accomplishment. Right. This goes all the way back to ancient Buddhist psychology, where they describe this phenomenon of a hungry ghost. And the hungry ghost is a beautiful, you can picture this in your mind, long and narrow esophagus, huge stomach to the point where no matter how much it eats, it's never satisfied. It can right. never fill its belly. Right. That's, that's the hamster wheel mentality. You're describing it perfectly. Yeah, and a hundred percent. And I feel it with work and I feel it with the sugar. Like all of these are the same thing. Like there's no amount of sugar that will satisfy me and make me feel like, oh, that was good. I'm done. Like that doesn't exist. And the same thing with work. Like as, there's a little part, which is like, thank God the work keeps coming in, but there's no point at which I've done some work. And then I like, I'm, I'm already thinking, huh, it's been a while since I've really come out with a new book. I literally have a new book coming out in September, but I finished writing it already. So now we're like doing some other stuff. We're doing some marketing stuff, but it's like, you know, what, book, what's my next, next thing going to be? Right. <laughs> so it's very short lived. Yeah. But so, the other, so let me just, let me share this other side of the picture, which is the other side is not doing work creates its own amount of anxiety, like its own set of anxiety, because, you know, for the reasons that we talked about beforehand. So it's like, I yeah. feel like I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. So let's, let's bookmark that piece in terms of okay. the not doing work and we'll come back to it. But I just want to highlight, make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. So you're seeing the downsides where there's this pull. It doesn't feel good to be uh, doing several things at once. And then the, uh, the satisfaction is short-lived and actually drives the addictive process to want to do more. Right. hundred percent. Right? We can never, we can never have, you know, it, it, our brains say, oh, you know, it, our brains basically say you got to prepare for famine. Right. This is why right. sugar says, oh, this is an easy source of calories. Get more, get more, get more, get more. It never stops. Right. right. The same thing is true where it's like, oh, there could be famine in my work. And so I got to get more, get more, get more, right. get more. Right. hundred percent. hundred percent. I'm with you. hundred percent. So it's important to point out, this is just our brain survival mechanism, ancient one that is applied in modern day. And if we're not actually paying careful attention, we can just get strung along by it. And we're, 20 years go by and we're like, what happened to my life? I just overworked myself to death and I didn't need to, you know? Right. Now I've got excess and, you know, it's, it's not helping me. It's not helping right. my family, et cetera. So this is where 
uh, let's just summarize this second step, which is seeing really clearly what you're getting. And then this will help. This is what shifts into the third piece that helps us shift the behavior. So the first piece of this is, is already seeing, oh, this is not actually as rewarding as I would have expected. You know, right. For example, my patients who want to quit smoking, the first thing I have them do is smoke. They look at me like I'm crazy, but I say, pay attention as you smoke. And they realize cigarettes taste like crap. And so they get this negative prediction error and smoking is less rewarding for them. We just right. did a study. We have this app called Eat Right Now, where we have people pay attention as they overeat. And we just published this study. It only takes 10 or 15 times for somebody to pay attention as they overeat for that reward value to drop below zero, where they stop uh -huh. overeating. Right. So right. it doesn't take a ton for us to start to become disenchanted with these old habits. Yet that's only the that's step two. Step three is what I call bringing in the bigger, better offer. Because step two sets up this deficit for our brain to say, "Well, that's not that great. Give me something better. Give me exactly. a better yeah. thing." So right. let's let's zoom in on that now. So when you see that, let, let's call it the the constantly thinking about work or overworking isn't that rewarding if that's fair to say what are things in those moments like have you had times where you haven't overworked where you've just been totally ensconced in if yeah. that's the right word yeah just like be working out or paying being yeah. with your so family yesterday, what does that feel like? yesterday is a great example yesterday my my the whole family was together my oldest daughter's in college now and and my oldest daughter uh, Isabel really wanted to go to the Harry Potter store and with my middle daughter, uh, Sophia, who's she's 19, 15. And then Isabel said to me, like, I'd love for you, like, it might be a little weird. I'm gonna have some friends coming and they might think it's a little weird, but I would love for you to come too. Can you come? And I was like, I'm happy to come. I'd love to. We had an absolutely delightful day. And, 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 you know, we went to the Harry Potter store and we just, you know, like had a little butter beer and, you know, and I, I marveled at the world that comes out of someone's imagination. I really love that. And at the end of the day, she said, thank you so much for coming, dad. Like, I really appreciated you being there. And it just, and then we finished the night with them uh, uh, baking a cake. Well, now we're going to mix the sugar and the pleasure, but baking a cake for my, uh, for my son, uh, who's turning 14. And but the music was playing and it was in the Heights and, you know, Isabel and her friends and Sophia were in there cooking and singing at the same time. And I was just watching them. And I was like, this, I love this. This is like my favorite moment. And, but I have to say, and I also thought, oh, I haven't per finished preparing for my Judd podcast. Right. I, so at the same time as I was sort of enjoying that at that point, I was just enjoying it, but I was like, I'm going to sit next to it and enjoy it, but I got to, I got to keep going through this book because I want to make sure that I'm prepared for this conversation. So yeah. I still drew myself out of it in that moment um, somewhat, but I, but yesterday, like, I just loved that day. Yeah. And there were moments where I was in the Harry Potter store and a little bored, right? Like there were also <laughs> moments when I was there, I was like, well, you know, I love being with my kids, but it's a little boring, yeah. but I, yeah. but for the most part, I, I just loved it. So let me ask you this. Did you go bankrupt in that period of time? No. Okay. So there's an example of where you can find, let's call it work-life balance. I, I, it's overused, but where you're spending time with your family, you're not thinking about work. You know, there's always boredom that comes up. So I think that's kind of a, a, a tangent here, but it's, it's, 
there's an example of the bigger, better offer. You, you took time, you spent it with your family. You had an amazing time. How does that feel as compared to have been constantly thinking about work during those, during that period of time? Um, it felt great. It felt yep. great. I do want to ask you about whether boredom is truly a tangent because okay. I do find that in those moments of boredom, I default to work. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I wonder whether like there's some tolerance of boredom that allows me to then be present for those other moments. But uh, to me, I just wonder whether boredom's a tangent or whether it's really uh... So in that sense of it, it um, being instrumental for you, you know, your work moving forward, I, I, that's where I was thinking it's a tangent. I but let's, so let's just touch on it. So boredom is like sugar. If we don't know how to work with it, it's going to drive us to do stuff because boredom has that same restless quality to it that right. sugar does, where it says, right. oh, we eat some sugar. Boredom says, go do something. Sugar, right. you eat some sugar and it says, go eat some more. Okay. Right. So in that sense, it's not a tangent. And in the same sense, if we don't know how to work with it, if we don't know how to work with our urges to, you know, to have sugar or to, you know, go distract ourselves when we're bored. Right then we're, we're going to be caught up in, in these same habit loops, whether it's a boredom habit loop, a sugar habit loop, or a check, checklist habit loop, or any of these things. Right. So this, just, to, just to kind of highlight what this third step is, you know, finding what I call bigger, better offers, it's important not just to find anything. You know, we'd say, oh, you know, when, when I'm bored, I could go, you know, I could go surf the internet. Well, now I've got an internet, you know, addiction. Addiction, uh, right many folks have. So the key is really something that helps us step out of these old habit loops that's also intrinsically rewarding. And I think of these, and um, so if you think of anxiety, for example, or you think of boredom, well, let me ask you, so this is, this is not rehearsed. When you feel bored, does it feel more closed or contracted or more open and expanded if you had to pick one of those categories? Closed um, or I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, it feels closed and contracted. Yeah. How about anxiety? Yeah. Uh, anxiety. Yeah. Feels like open and. Does anxiety feel open? Well, I contract in anxiety. Yeah. But... That's what I'm asking about. Oh you. yeah. Okay. So, so what do I do in, in, in boredom? Uh, well, actually and... you don't even need to, sorry, just, you don't even need to go there. I, what I wanted to highlight was these categorical differences in terms of the quality of the experience. So right. when we're bored, we feel contracted. And this is research that my lab has done as well. So you just replicated it. Nice work. Right. Um, and anxiety feels contracted. Frustration feels contracted. When we look at our to-do list and we see that it's not checked off, we feel contracted. This is in contrast to when we are curious, when we're just truly curious about something. So let's say you walk right. in the Harry Potter store and you're like, wow, look at this creativity, right? Right. Does that feel closed or open? I mean, very I'm open. The yeah, 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 no, 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 but very open, very open. Yeah. So, and what does it feel better to feel closed or to feel open? Yeah, certainly feel better to be open. Yeah. So right. here, our brains have this intrinsic reward hierarchy where they preference openness to closeness, and this actually right. fits nicely with like Carol Dweck's work around fixed mindset oh, versus growth yeah. mindset. You know, when we're in growth mindset, we're in a better place to be being creative, to right. connecting with people, all this stuff. So bigger, better offers, I think of the, the two main ones, uh, two main categories that help us open are curiosity mm -hmm. and kindness. So curiosity feels open when we are beating ourselves up, 
we feel closed. We tend not, we're just get stuck in habits of beating ourselves up. Why didn't I do more work? Why didn't I do this right? right. Versus right. being kind to ourselves, that feels better. So that's right. really that third step is finding rewards that are more rewarding. Does that make sense? And you're saying finding rewards that are expansive, like, like yes. pursuing yeah. the expanse versus the contraction. Yes. Right. So, right. So right. let's, let's get concrete here. When you have a thought, let's say, uh, let's go back to your, the time you're spending with your family yesterday, where you, you know, you, they're all having a good time baking and all this. And you have this thought, oh, I need to read this book. Um, what if you just got curious and noticed, oh, there's this thought and just notice it as a thought and kind of place it off to the side or let it go as compared to being pulled along by it. Um, and this is really what, what mindfulness training is all about right, is help right. people see these thoughts, let them go as compared to getting caught up in them. Uh, does, does that feel accessible without, you know, yeah, without going no, absolutely. Them? And you talk about in the book that mindfulness training was five times better than the current treatment in helping people quit smoking and mindfulness. And you're suggesting mindfulness on both sides. You're saying, you know, on the the, on the eating sugar or the keeping myself busy, just notice what's going on in that moment. And is it pleasure? And, you know, there's some ways in which the eating sugar is pleasure for the first few bites, for sure. Uh, and then after a while, it's not. Um, and it's just very, very momentary pleasure. With work, um, it's, it's, there's, there's also pleasure to doing work. Like I like working. Sure, I, sure. I like it. Um, there's pleasure, but then there's also all of the anxiety and stress that comes from not being able to let it go. And, and then in terms of the reward, yeah, I could look at that moment, which I guess is like another trigger loop. Like what's the trigger, I guess, what's the trigger to getting me to work is I'm enjoying all of this pleasure and going, huh, why in that moment, there were other moments I could have looked at the book. Why in that moment am I now going, oh, let me, you know, why am I getting nervous about like, you know, am I running out of time? And, and then is there like something about, yeah, like what's going on for, I mean, I could, I could psychoanalyze it, but like what's going on for me in that moment that I pick up the book. Yeah. And the, again, it could have just been some random thought you didn't even notice because it was fleeting. And then you thought, started thinking about the book again, the triggers are, are not that important, but let's go back to something very interesting that you said, which was, well, sugar's pleasurable for a while. So if you, if you think of a time uh, recently, if you can, when you ate something that was very sugar laden, right? Do you get a sugar, a, pla a pleasure plateau, let's call it that, where you eat something, it's, it's tasty and then it's tasty and then it's less tasty and then it kind of plateaus out? Um, uh, yes, yes, yes and no. Because like I, I was eating ice cream the other day and I noticed like I'm full. Like it uh -huh. kind of hurts, I'm so full. Yeah. And yet I'm still eating the ice cream. What's going on? Yeah. And what's going on is like the moment I put it in my mouth, like the, the taste bud sensation, I'm still sort of enjoying it. Like it's still pretty good. But, yeah. you know, that's, that's fleeting. And eventually it goes into my stomach and then, then I enjoy that less. So I do. But yeah, certainly like eating Doritos or eating, you know, like, yeah, there's definitely a, a pleasure plateau, but it's the pleasure plateau with sugar is a little tricky for me. It is. So let me ask you, and this is something you could play with. If you bring awareness to your entire experience, the next time you eat ice cream and not just to the taste. So that's part. what I did after I first read your book, I started, I started doing that. And that made a big difference. Like that got me off sugar for a bunch of days and still, which was, 
like, oh, I'm going to sleep. I feel gross. I'm not sleeping very well. My heart's beating too fast. Like I'm noticing all of those things. And I'm like, I don't like this package. I don't like the whole package. So the whole package is what's called life. And we have to pay attention right. to the whole package. We, we can't ignore parts of life and, and just you know hope that they'll go away. Right. So let's quickly apply this to working. When you work and you find pleasure, if you just keep working and working and working, is it always as pleasurable? Uh, no, no. Okay. It's, it's Pleasure plateau? Yeah, there is a pleasure plateau. There's yeah, a pleasure plateau. The and there's also, like- there's also this like, like I might enjoy working but I also enjoy relaxing and I'm not getting any of this. But yeah. then there also is a pleasure plateau to the work itself where yeah. it's like, well, I got to get this done, but I'm not having that much fun anymore. Yeah. So there can be the pleasure plateau just in the work, but also, as you just pointed out, when you bring in the whole picture, it's much easier to see where that plateaus. It's like, right. you know, I'm, I'm not getting to work out. I'm not spending time with my family. That's a negative piece of right. you know, even if I'm enjoying the work, there's that, that piece that says, wow, you know, I'm not spending time. So that's, that's that second step is just really being able to see all of these things clearly and then also compare them, right? What's it like when I eat too much sugar versus when I eat, you know, a couple of, couple of scoops, let's say of ice cream, right. and then I stop there, I still have gotten the pleasure of doing it and I don't get that stomach ache. Right, right. I, I would like to try that one day. your mission should you choose to accept it yeah um uh yeah i mean i just find it very very hard to stop i also think i also think actually because i've thought a bunch about this i think these two things are related so i actually think the like i have a very hard time just relaxing Mm -hmm. right and when i'm eating i'm not also working at the same time so eating is a way of relaxing so I give myself permission to relax when I'm eating, in which case that's the pleasure of the relaxation. And then when I stop eating, well, I got to go back to work. And I'm, since I'm not giving myself that break, I'm only finding the relaxation in what turns out to be ultimately somewhat of a dysfunctional behavior. Does that make sense? It does. Makes complete sense. Right. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of these are very, very much entangled. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, hopefully that's given you a sense of these three steps, you know, map right. out the habit loop and we've mapped out several, you know, it could be sugar. It could be yep. the checklist mentality, whatever, see what we get from it. Right. And right. start to become disenchanted with the aspects that aren't, that, that are just not serving us well. doesn't right. mean we're going to not like the taste of ice cream. Ice cream is going to taste just as well. Good. And in fact, it's going to taste better when we pay attention, you know, often, right we eat ice cream and we're already thinking about the next bite when we've right. got ice cream in our mouth. <laughs> right, right, right. That anticipation. So that's that second step. And then the third step is really just see, finding that bigger, better offer, which could be as simple as just not overindulging or not overworking, but right. really paying attention to what it feels like to not overwork, right? right? For me, it feels much better. And in fact, I'm more efficient at work and I enjoy right. work more when I don't feel like I've been doing it all the time. Right, right. And, and it's, um, you know, you talk about, and I, and I find this very, very interesting, so I wanna make sure that we talk about it briefly, is the dynamic between the prefrontal cortex and the orbitofrontal cortex. Because, you know, in, in a leadership training I was running recently, I asked people, raise your hand if you find it easier to do things that are hard to do than to not do things that are tempting to do, right? Like 
like, you know, it's easier for me to discipline myself to work than it is to prevent myself from overeating sugar. And about half the room fits into the category of it's easier to discipline myself and push myself to do things I need to do. And half the room raise their hand for it's actually easier for me to not do things I don't want to do, but it's harder for me to push myself. And I've always been fascinated by this. And your description of the prefrontal cortex and the orbital frontal cortex explains it in some ways that these are actually two different mechanisms that are happening in our bodies. They are. And so think of the prefrontal cortex as the thinking and planning part of our brain, right? It's the seat of, of cognitive control. Some describe willpower. Neuroscientifically, there may willpower be maybe more myth than muscle, but we probably don't have time to go there. <laughs> but think of the prefrontal cortex as being this cognitive control part of the brain. Now, it's important to know that it's the youngest and the weakest part of the brain from an evolutionary perspective. So while it can work at the best of times when we're fed, when we're rested, when we're not frustrated, it actually goes offline during any of these things. So there's this saying in, in addiction treatment, halt, when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, we're more uh, vulnerable to relapse because that's when our, you know, our cognitive control parts of the brain go offline. So the prefrontal right. cortex very helpful. Planning and thinking is always helpful. Not the strongest part of the brain, not the part that I would rely on in a pinch, right? And in fact, right. when I'm in a pinch, it's run, it's headed out the door because it's like, right. you know, I, I'm, I'm not your man. I'm not your brain. I'm not your right. part of the right. brain. So the orbital frontal cortex is there that kind of sets up the organization where the habit parts of our brain, you know, it's, it's kind of setting up the circuitry or the um, think of it as the algorithm that's like, when given a choice, just do this, right? So we can we can do things very, very quickly. Right. So if, if the bottom line here is, as you're pointing out, they are very different systems. And if you're gonna if you're if you're gonna bet on one of them, I would bet on the older and the stronger part of the brain, uh, which is why we need to really focus on that part. You know, these habit from forming parts of the brain when we're really trying to instill good habits that last a long time and let go of unhealthy habits. And the, the nice thing about this is none of this takes willpower right. at all. It just takes awareness. Right. And that's the whole point of this process, right? Which is to say, you just become aware of what the triggers are, the behaviors are, the rewards are, and, and, and ask yourself, you know, how's that working for you? Right? Yes. And, and then feel how that's working for you. And then your brain naturally reorganizes to go for the rewards that are truly not superficially rewarding. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Nicely right. put. Right. This is great. And what I'm actually finding in this conversation as I think about it is like all of these issues that I, that I struggle with, you know, the working too much or the sugar, or just generally, you know, like worrying about what the future is going to look like, which you talk a lot about in the book, um, they're all interconnected. So mm -hmm. like, you know, when I'm, you know, the, the sugar thing comes, it's almost balancing out the work thing, both dysfunctionally, but it sort of balances it out and to sort of slow down and, 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 you know, again, the book unwinding anxiety to like unwrap, unwind these different elements to begin to sort of see, you know, what's, what's really, what's really going on. What's really giving me pleasure. What's, you know, not what's been ingrained from my parents or what's been ingrained from my previous experience and behaviors and, you know, but what's, what's really going on, what's there. And I imagine there's some degree of, you know, and I've written this book called Leading with Emotional Courage, you know, the willingness to feel things. There's some degree of increasing our capacity to feel things that are a little unpleasant 
uh, as opposed to try to avoid them. And maybe being mindful about that, you realize, you know, sadness is not actually unpleasant. Like it, we affiliate it with unpleasant, but being sad, there's actually a certain pleasure to allowing yourself to be sad. Um, there's certainly pleasure to being angry. There's, you know, there's maybe even pleasure to envy, which is the pleasure of desire. But to be able to feel that allows us and maybe it's not all pleasurable. Maybe it's just uncomfortable and unpleasurable. But the mindfulness would say a willingness to feel that allows you to not necessarily distract yourself from it. Is that. Am I thinking about this correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I don't know if you've heard this saying or even wrote a, written about it. Uh, the, you know, this, the only way out is through. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the way I think about what you're, what you're describing. We can't just avoid things that are unpleasant. Uh, and we've, we've got to actually face them and turn toward them. Curiosity helps us turn toward them. So why, you know, why is it important to, to turn toward them? Because we've got, to, we've got to face reality. We've got to face life. And one thing that we're seeing in modern day is there's this, this great propensity for this uh, to avoid distress. You know, we're, we're unlearning how to have good distress tolerance. We're, we're intolerant to distress because you, you know, if you feel pain, you can take a painkiller, you can take an opioid. If you feel emotional pain, you can take a pill, you can distract yourself. You know, we're doing all of these things. Uh, you know, our phones are weapons of mass distraction as Cornel West put it. You know, we're, we're getting conditioned to a, anything that's unpleasant, even just waiting for our computer to boot up. We're like, oh, why is this? You know, it took a quarter of a second for my computer to boot up. What's wrong with my computer? You know, we're, we're getting conditioned in this way more right. and more and more to the point where we're just not okay with, with distress. Distress in itself, like just, uh, you know, think boredom, for example, feels a little restless, feels a little uncomfortable. You know, people are sitting at stoplights, you know, and they're like checking their phones because they can't sit for 30 seconds at a red light. Right. So it's really important to see one, you know, this uncertainty is what's driving us to adapt to the world. If we're constantly sticking our head in the sand, you know, we're not going to see what's happening everywhere else. And that's actually not helpful for our survival. Right. That's great. That's so great. Judd, um, it is such a pleasure to be speaking with you. The book is Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. I've loved this conversation. I loved reading the book. I highly suggest it. And it's, it's really like it's, it's science-based and it's incredibly practical in terms of the way I know most people uh, and myself included, obviously, live our lives. And it's a way of sort of softening around the edges of some of that stuff. So, Judd, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, 
Check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.